Let's pray as we start. Father God in heaven, thank you so much for this time, and we pray that wherever we are, as we have opened your word, we know that today you are speaking, and so I pray you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a little bit about a chap called Henry, Henry Heathenson. Yes, Henry Heathenson. Henry was an iron worker who lived let's say about 3,000 years ago, somewhere in the world. Henry's main source of income is making statues um, of the local idol. Let's call the local idol Barry Baal. Um, and uh, what, what Barry Baal did was he, you trust in Barry Baal and you get protection from the sort of marauding hordes. And Henry, Henry's job, Henry Heathenson's job, was to use, use his iron tools to, to shape this bit of wood into Barry Baal. So he gets into his, his getting the tools ready, he gets hot, he gets, he gets actually um, quite hungry, he gets quite tired, and then towards the end of the day, he starts getting cold. So anyway, there he is, he's got his piece of wood, his lump of tree that he's going to turn into Barry Baal, um, and, and he's shaping the trunk into Barry. But of course, he's hungry and he's cold, so he takes half of the wood and turns it into a fire, and he uses the fire to cook his tea and also to keep himself warm. So half of the wood cooks his pizza, and half of the wood becomes his god. Once he's finished, Harry Heathenson bows down and worships this lump of wood and says, deliver me, oh my god. Ridiculous, isn't it? How is an idol that depends on your own craftsmanship to exist able to save you? Why is that idol worthy of worship? But the thing is, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, that's exactly how God describes us when we turn and trust in anything else other than him for life taking something from within creation, which relies on other created things in order to be anything at all, and putting your trust in it. Now, sometimes those idols had human faces because they were carved. What the idols did was basically represent um, perhaps human power, human fertility, human wealth. These were the things that were being worshipped. And the thing that God asks through the prophet Isaiah is, how stupid do you have to be to trust in something that relies on you in order to save you in the first place? How can that be worthy of your hope? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, it can't. There is absolutely nothing that thing can do. And yet, the sorry history of humanity is that we have done this from the beginning, turning to created things, rejecting God, and saying we're going to trust in the work of our own hands to deliver us into paradise, to give ourselves a meaning and worthwhile life. Why is it, then, that we can't help but worship something? Well, the Bible's answer is, at root, humanity is a worshipping animal. We were born this way. We were born to worship, to bow down. Because we were made to worship God. This is our true end. This is how God put us together. And so just as a wheel is made to spin and run, so humans are made to worship. It's just what we do. Because God made us for communion, for fellowship with himself, to bow down and worship him and find in him our all and all our enjoyment. And so therefore, here's the difference between Harry Heathenson and all that kind of idolatry stuff and God. Unlike the gods we make for ourselves, God doesn't need us for anything. And we see this in verses four and five of our psalm. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The depths, the very deepest place you can go and the highest place you can go. The sea is God's, he made it. 
God is not found at any point within creation because he, the, the theological word is he transcends it. He goes beyond it at every point because he made it. It is his creation. He is not limited to it. He exists outside the universe as its creator, holding every part of it together. And that means that God is infinitely alive. He is perfectly complete. And so when he chose to create, it wasn't as though he had something lacking inside of him. It's not like creation was some cosmic status update that God did in order to be loved, to feel worthy, to feel like someone liked him. And therefore, unlike when we turn to the works of our hands and serve those, those things take our life, they take our strength, because as we give, they take, because they need us. When we turn to worship God, we actually find it's life-giving, not life-taking, because this is the grain of the universe. This is how we were made. This is how things are made to work. God himself is the source of all life. So in worshiping God, we're not giving him some emotional crutch, we're recognizing who we are and who he is. Now, as I said, since the beginning, humanity has failed in this, and God had to step in and put things right. And so, yes, as Christians, we study the gospel. We study the gospel hard of how we are sinners, wretched and fallen and helpless to save ourselves. But in Jesus, God absorbed his own wrath to save us from his judgment. But, controversial points, that's not the point. Don't get me wrong, don't mishear me. The gospel's important. The gospel is of first importance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But the gospel isn't the end point. Jesus did those things. He saved us so that we might worship. That's what he says in John 17. This is eternal life. Not that we sit around going, we're no longer under God's wrath. That's good news. No, Jesus says eternal life is worshiping God, enjoying him forever having fellowship with him as our father. Now, one day, our glorious destiny is that we will be involved in a, a perfect worship service that will never end, that will not be boring, that will, that will just get better and better. But until then, God calls his church to worship him here on earth. He calls us together to worship. And Psalm 95 has been used for centuries in the church as a call to worship. It's known as the venite, just the Latin word for come. It's the venite, come and worship. So yes, in a broad sense, all of life is dedicated to God. Christians never have a day off duty of giving their lives to God. Of course, that's true. But actually, the Bible speaks a lot more in many ways about a coming together, specific things and times in which we say this is the high point of living our lives for God's glory. For us as a church, it's meeting together. We'll get on to lockdown in a moment. But the rest of our Christian lives flow from this worship. And Psalm 95 sets out that in crystal clear detail. And so we've got two parts to the psalm, haven't we? Um, it breaks quite nicely in the middle of verse 7. So the first half of the psalm is the call to worship, and the second half is the callousness to worship. The call to worship and callousness to worship. Now, it's a song. And so unlike every good composition, the first line of it, the first motif actually captures all the different themes that come in the whole song. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to work through it word or phrase of it at a time. That Just that first line. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. That is how we're going to work through it. 
So first, let's start with the venite, come. Worship is called. Worship, in fact, is commanded. This is God speaking, it's not optional. And in that word come, there's this idea of movement. Notice verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving. There is a movement to God. Now, we don't have a physical temple, but in Hebrews 12, it says we actually come to the heavenly assembly when we gather together for worship. One of the early theologians and bishops of the church, St. Augustine, thought for a while, why is there this word come? How are we to come into the presence of the one who is everywhere? Good question. Um, his, his answer, and he, he's right, is that for us, yes, it means a movement to be with God's people wherever we gather for worship. Um, as I said, we'll talk about lockdown in a moment. But primarily, it's a movement of the heart. It is a movement towards God with a deliberate desire to turn away from sin and turn to him as our only hope and purpose. And so in one sense, when we get to the second half of verse 7, we'll see there is a very scary warning there. But actually, it's not just there that the warning comes. It's right there in the first word. We need to be called to worship because we often find ourselves turning our hands and our hearts to serve something else, usually ourselves. And in fact, we would far more readily be found serving ourselves than we would serving God in worship. But God's call, in the words of this psalm, interrupts our distraction. We've not long got back from holiday in the Isle of Wight, and one of the things we did there was we went on a, a lovely steam train. Saren is obsessed with steam trains. Um, and yet, as we were walking along the platform, we had to keep stopping and saying to Saren, who's two, um, Saren, get your hands out of that bucket. So a bucket's collecting rainwater. Walk along a few more steps. Saren, stop patting the dog. Come, come on, let's get on the train. And a few minutes later, Saren, come, stop pointing at the floor. No idea what she was pointing at, but apparently it was very interesting. We had to keep saying, come on, Saren, come on. Maybe that's our attitude. Yeah, we know there's worship. Yeah, we know God's great. But, you know, I'm really interested in this floor. Yeah, we know worship's really important, really interesting. Yeah, but there's this thing that I want to indulge myself in. We need God's voice to cut through that distraction and say, come, abandon your idolatries. Abandon the unbelief that leads to your idolatries and come. So that's the first thing. The second thing, let us have you seen how many lettuces there, let, I'm not interested in salad, how many let us is there are in this psalm? I count five in the NIV, two in verse one, one in verse two, and then a couple in verses six and seven. Let us, let us, worship is communal. It's meant to be done together. Yes, Romans 12, verses one and two, in light of the mercies of God, Give yourselves, your whole bodies as living sacrifices. Our whole life is worship on our own. But, but there is this, there is a gathering, a bowing, a singing, a falling down in worship together. Unfortunately, the Christian life today is, for a variety of reasons, become an individualistic thing, a private individual affair. You know, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. Sounds kind of cool, but it's a way of saying I, I want to just do things my own way on my own and, and just explore God on my own. But that's not the way it should be. Time and again in this psalm, in the book of Psalms, yes, there are times when there's, you know, the first person singular, I and me and my relationship with God. Of course there's that. But in so much of the Bible, it's we, it's us, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, adoring our living God together, captivated by his wonder. Look at verse 7. He is not my God, he is ours. 
Think of the Lord's Prayer. Nowhere in the Lord's Prayer can you find I or me. It's us, it's our. Think about when you go to, I don't know, a a sports match or a music concert. Clapping and cheering on your own would be quite a, a lonely affair. But when you've got thousands of people around you, that swell of celebration lifts your own paltry effort and carries you along with it. Now, as I said, lockdown has been hard, or at least it should have been, because we have not been able to do this. Now, for God's own perfect reasons, for good ends, we have had this time away from being together. And maybe one of God's reasons is to teach us the preciousness of corporate worship to long for that sweet moment of standing alongside our church family and hearing each other sing, pray, bow down together and adore our God together. So, come, let us, what? What's next? Sing. We'll get to that as well. Worship is called, it's communal and it's choral. We are to sing to shout aloud, to extol God, make a joyful noise, and yes, to bow down and to kneel in worship. So to make sure we don't harden our hearts, we need to make sure we harden our voice boxes and our knees. That is how we do it. Singing and shouting with music, kneeling alongside one another in humble prayer. Because the thing is, this, this, this actually does come as a surprise to some people, we're not brains on sticks. The whole of us is involved in the Christian life. That includes our bodies, our voices, our emotions, everything. And it's easy to be detached from the Christian life or perhaps detached from worship if the only thing we value is the intellectual activity of listening to the sermon. Now, the word of God preached is really important. It's a big deal in the worship service, but it's not the only thing in the worship service. Surely it means something that the biggest book of the Bible, at least if you're counting chapters and verses, is a song book. That is the biggest book um, that we have in our English Bibles. Not according to Hebrew word count, so don't come back at me on that. But in terms of chapter and verses, Psalms is the longest. So singing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs isn't an opportunity to enjoy your favorite tune or to sift through the words and test them for biblical soundness and kind of give a nod of approval. No, that's not what singing is about. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, together we are lifting the glory of God and we are celebrating him. We're singing praise to him as a present and ever-relevant king. There's an Old Testament scholar, um, Gordon Wenham, and he's written quite a lot, actually, on how singing psalms and singing the biblically rich hymns of the church is phenomenally powerful and important for the whole of the Christian life. He quotes an 18th century Scottish legislator who says this, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. I'll say it again, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. What's, what's his point in making these arguments? Well, because in singing, we internalize the stuff we're singing about in a powerful and personal way. And it has an effect on how we live. It shapes us. It gets us down deep. And also, Gordon Wenham goes on, as we're saying these things, we are committing ourselves publicly to a position. 
we are saying, so for instance, look at verse 3. The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Wow, that's true. But as you say it, you're actually committing yourself to living that out in your life. You are saying, this is my God. So as we sing and shout praise to God, we are committing ourselves to living for his glory. Singing on Sunday helps your walk on Monday. So come, let us sing. What's next in that first line? For joy! I remember listening to um, some you know, very old Anglican liturgies, a sort of way of chanting things, and I always remember there's just a dirge. I can't remember which point it is, but it's, you know, as we come together, we sing for joy. And you just kind of think there is sort of hardly anything less joyful than that horrible, horrible dirge. Sorry, that was very loud in the microphone there. But what is the psalmist saying? Triumph, jubilation, celebration. This is how we should feel when we come into the presence of God in worship. Yes, there is a place for silence and stillness. Look at verse 6, bowing down, kneeling, reverence as a family kneeling before their father. But to do this with joy, that's the first note of the psalm, means we do it intentionally. The psalms care about our emotions, our desires and delights, as well as our fears and sorrows. And so there is to be a palpable, authentic sense of excitement as the church comes together, as the people of God gather to praise him disinterest and boredom have no place here. And that's, that's really what this means. Obviously, there is lament and sorrow in the Psalms. It, you can't read the book of Psalms for a few pages without getting loads of that. And that is real, that is needed. But in calling us to joyful worship, this is what the psalmist is saying, be thrilled with God. Be thrilled with God. Let him be that which moves and affects you more than anything else in your life. It's often said you can know what someone really cares about by what they do with their money. And yes, I think there is a lot of truth in that. But you can also tell what someone really cares about by what gets them singing, by what truly delights them. Imagine coming into a large sum of money, or getting that promotion, or getting that marriage proposal, or getting that all clear. These are things which bring immense delight. They're amazing things, but none of them really compare with the fellowship we can enjoy with God in communion with God's people. And the reality is people around us will notice. You know, so if, if Wales winning the Six Nations gets me more excited than the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, what are people around me going to infer from that? They're going to say, well, we know which one matters more to Chris. So the question for you this morning is, what is the overflow of your heart? What really gets you singing? But finally, and most importantly, joy isn't whipped up out of nowhere. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. He is the root of it all. He is the root of our joy. Our joy comes because of who we're coming before as we worship the living God. Let us sing, let us shout. Let us bow down, let us kneel, let us extol his name. Why? Because he's God. That's who he is. That's just what we do. Do you know who he is? Unlike the God of the heathen nations, of mythology, God is not limited to one place or one territory or one part of life. I said before, the sea is his, verse 5, for he made it. The sea is a symbol of chaos and disorder and fear. Well, that sea is just a thimble 
between the divine finger and thumb. God is the all-powerful creator. He is the all-righteous judge, the governor of the universe and the sustainer of your life. Neither improved nor diminished by the world that he created, the living God upholds every fiber, every atom of our being. Every event in your life is held by him, controlled by him. It does not come by chance. If we stopped there, we could sing his transcendent glory every second of our lives and it still wouldn't be sufficient for his honor and dignity and might and power. But here's the thing. This God shows mercy to sinners. Most significantly for our worship, he does not leave us in our sin. God owns the whole world, he made it, and yet in an act of petty theft, humanity decided to claim ownership over ourselves. Yet God didn't leave us under his righteous anger. As the good shepherd, he entered into our situation and laid down his life so that, verse 7, we could become people of his safe pasture, the flock under his care. So a grumbling, ungrateful, sinful people could be made his people, even though we didn't deserve it. This is why we worship we ruined ourselves, we snubbed the author of life and goodness, and yet he saved us. He made us whole, he raised us from death. In fact, this is how we can worship. He gives us new hearts that see him and his goodness and his love. Let us shout aloud, verse 1, to the rock of our salvation. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be my Saviour's love for me. So that's the call to worship. Now, wouldn't it be nice if the psalm just stopped there? What a lovely way to end this song. And yet it doesn't. It kind of goes on into quite an uncomfortable place. And in fact, there are some people who think that the two halves of the psalm are so different that actually it's just a really bad mashup, that someone's just stuck two songs together that really, really shouldn't go. But actually, it is the perfectly natural way to carry on this song, isn't it? Come and worship, the call goes out to God's people, because we are prone to wander. Because we're prone to turning back to the works of our hands to look for meaning and life. And so the warning comes, do not harden your hearts. We heard in that reading in Hebrews 3, the warning is expanded from do not harden your heart to verse, verse 12 of Hebrews 3, let none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And here's the terrifying reality. You can be amongst God's people, but in the end actually turn out never to have been one of God's people. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? But that's what happened with a generation of Israelites. Verse 8, back in Psalm 95, the event it's referring to is in Exodus 17. There, the Israelites had been saved out of Egypt by God's miraculous power, and yet there they are in the desert. They're grumbling. Why? Because they're thirsty. They want to drink. And the fact that they're thirsty is proof to them that God isn't with them. The Lord is not amongst us, they say. Now, you might wonder if there were maybe one or two people there who said, guys, do you remember what we just saw in Egypt? You know, how God delivered us, all those plagues, how, you know, the lamb died and we didn't. 
Do you remember like when God split the ocean in half so we could walk through on dry land and then use those same waves to destroy the most powerful army in the world? Do you, do you think God might be able to manage a drink? Now, if there had been those people, the overwhelming response from the Israelites would have been, uh, no, God hasn't given me a drink right now. If God, then I wouldn't be feeling like this. So God is obviously not amongst us. How ridiculous. Well, God did provide a drink. He split open the rock and gave them a drink, but he said, you have quarreled with me or you have rebelled against me and you have tested me. You have said, I don't think God is good. Well, that's ridiculous. Then in Numbers 14, these same people, they're supposed to be entering into Canaan, into the land of rest, the, the promised place of peace. And they're scared. Why? Because they've heard the report that there are big, strong men in the land and they don't want to go in. Can God take us into this land? Life was much better in Egypt, actually. So yet again, they doubt God. And so we read, God swore in his anger, they shall not enter my rest. They shall instead spend 40 years wandering in the desert until they've all died off. Their hearts had gone astray. Look at verse 9. They had seen what I did, but verse 10, the end of it, they have not known my ways. They have seen God's power and grace in giving life to a sinful people, but they didn't want to know him for themselves. Well, what does this have to do with us? God still speaks today. Hebrews 3, written a long time after Psalm 95, says, today, as you read this text, God is speaking. And today in 2020, as we read this text, God is speaking to you. Do not harden your hearts. Be warned. Half-heartedness. Half-heartedness half is en route to hard-heartedness. Now, this can be really obvious, can't it? You, you kind of come to church because someone you love expects you to come to church, but you're not really that interested. Well, God warns you, you have seen and you have heard of my power. Do not harden your hearts, because one day it will be too late. But perhaps it comes in more subtle ways, and these are the more dangerous ways, that they come without realizing it. That first generation of Israelites, do you think that they would have owned up to being hard-hearted and rejecting God? Hebrews 3.13 says, do not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. You don't realize your heart is hardening, perhaps until it's too late. You may have allowed it to harden without knowing it, maybe feeling frustrated because God hasn't lived up to your expectations, or you're growing tired or bored with the gospel with your commitment to prayer, to studying God's word, to being with God's people. Perhaps you once had excitement about being a Christian and you're not really that bothered anymore that the buzz has gone. That's just kind of how it goes, isn't it? Maybe you're finding the prospect of riches or holidays or success in school or work more appealing than knowing God, more appealing than the joy of knowing the living God. Well, this is the warning that God has for you and for me today. Do not harden your hearts. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest, which is eternal life and glory, still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, you might be hearing this and think, well, who is up to this? 
And I know for myself, you know, my joy in Jesus is hardly something that's going to top the world charts. Does that mean I've got no hope? Well, no, of course, the good news is that we're not saved by the fervency of our religious feelings. We're not saved by the measure of our joy. We're saved by Christ and by him alone. This is a real warning about hardening our hearts. But here's the thing with warnings. If you pay attention to them, they don't come to pass. If the warnings are followed, then we're safe. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, those who are truly his cannot be snatched from his father's hand. His salvation is totally secure. But he actually says in that chapter, he uses the language of flock and voice. He says, you know you are my sheep, the flock in my pasture. Why? Because my sheep hear my voice. So if today you are hearing this warning, you could be hardening your heart. And you look at your life and you say, my goodness me, yes, I could see how this is happening. Don't be afraid that you're lost. Hear the warning and say, I am going to come back to God once again. And that is how the call leaves us today, listening and turning and saying, we are yours. You are our God, our King above all kings. Forgive me and restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so we circle back round to that first word again, venite, come, make that move. If you're weary and you've lost momentum in the Christian life because of lockdown, come do not harden your heart. If you're facing a new term, school or university, or new job situation, and you're tempted by the path of least resistance by playing down your Christian life, come. Do not harden your heart. If life has been tough and you're at the end of yourself, come. Do not harden your heart. Literally, come. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. We might not be doing any singing together, but next week we are back together in here. And there may be very good reasons why you can't come. You're shielding, um, you're isolating, whatever that might be. Then if that's you and, and health-wise you cannot come, then, then maybe it is best you stay at home. But here's just a little challenge. If you've been eating out to help out or going to the shops, then you can come. And trust me, what you'll find here is much better than anything Rishi Sunak has to offer you. Come, let us encourage one another daily to come and sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock of his care. Amen. Amen.